0: And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand, Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast!
1: And we're back and we're off again, and it's time for us to talk about our, our, our continuing obsessions, I guess. Yeah. In less than a month, I'll be off down the street here to uh, go to at least part of the Nebula Awards weekend, uh, which is a ballot which is interesting, but not that interesting. Uh, And now we have news coming in from Mid-American too that we have, or you told me this, I just only know this because you tell me this, record numbers, massively record numbers of nominations coming in for this year's Hugo Awards.
0: This is true. On April the 14th, just a few days ago, our friends at File 770 reported that the the number of nominating ballots received has been announced, or an approximate number, and it is an all-time record, and it is more than double last year's amount. Basically, we're on a about a nine-year-long trend of increasing numbers of nominating ballots being re- you know, received, starting from just about 800 in 2009 and going up to over 4,000 this year, with a double last year and almost a double the year before obviously there are all kinds of trends caught up in this i mean some of it actually i think okay there's two trends there's the obvious ones to longtime followers of the science fiction field and that you know obviously that's the the arrival of the sad puppies and the rabid puppies and all that and then there's the other thing which is if, if you pin the significant increase to uh, the London WorldCon, I think the last couple of WorldCons have really seen a broadening in the demographic of WorldCon, and going back to Finland in 2007, we're going to Finland in 2017. Back to Europe is a huge factor, uh, and it's very hard to know uh-huh. how much of this increase is one people uh, members of the the Finnish convention who are voting for the first time coming into the nominating pool how many of it is mm-hmm. the traditional world con attending fan actually getting involved which if you think about it is what everybody wanted all along everybody exactly w- exactly i mean according to midamerican actually there was what 12,700 eligible nominators the, the largest number ever now that includes members of sasquan which is last year's convention members of midamerican right. and members of worldcon 75 which is finland right now, right. oh, so of those one in three, probably my guess is, though I haven't run the numbers, an all-time record has actually stuck their hand up to, to nominate. And if it weren't for the fact that we have come through a rather difficult period, you'd have yeah. to say that was that was an honour un- alloyed good. But what it does do, Gary, and this is without preempting or guessing, is it makes the April twenty sixth announcement of the Hugo ballot very, very interesting indeed.
1: It'll be a very interesting announcement, and I think it's going to... uh, I I, 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 I said this to you before we were talking. I think this is unpredictable. I I don't know my way around the field in this sense as well as you do, although in one sense it's encouraging that, as you mentioned, if you go back before last year's uh, kerfuffle, there had been increases of the numbers of nominations for almost a decade. Uh, So to some extent there has been a resurgence of... Interest in voting among science fiction readers apart from any slate voting or recommended slate voting or or, or, or vote stacking that's sort of thing. that part is encouraging and the problem is uh, as it was last year and will be again this year to separate out an actual increase in participation from uh, a sponsored increase in participation is
0: that a polite way to put it it probably is I mean. Uh, I, I have to actually correct myself briefly from last week as well. Last week on the podcast, I referred to mad Italian tax exiles. And I understand that, in fact, the, the tax exile in question um, is not in, in Italy, but maybe in Sweden or somewhere like that. So I'm now going to henceforth refer to them as mad European tax exiles. As, mm-hmm. as to as to you know, your question, I think one thing that is true is it's, there's no, you cannot argue that we're not getting a increased participation rate from... Non, yeah, mad European texile, exile supporters. It seems pretty likely that we've got a significant increase in interest from traditional convention attendees, and that's not a bad thing. You know, even if it changes as it must do. I mean, it's almost inevitable that changing the demographic that's nominating will change the works that get nominated. That's okay. That's what happens. It,
1: that's true. It's fine, and I
0: think to some extent,
1: uh, you do see. A, a, a generational shift over a period of the last decade or so, you do see a genuinely popular new writer appearing who's, who's widely uh, admired in, in Anne Leckie, uh, who appeared rather suddenly, it seemed to me, a couple of years ago, uh, consistently seemed to be getting not only a, a, a good popular response to her work, good reviews, award nominations, um, and she is somebody that... Um, is I think a new generation of mainstream science fiction writers that uh, that are getting the kind of rec- recognition. The other generation of writers, uh, it's it, the, we may be in the post Bryn, the post Benford, the post Bear, the post maybe even the post Robinson era of readers. I'm not talking about the quality of the fiction here at all. Uh, my interest is in whether uh, not only a younger group of readers, but as you mentioned, the more diverse. Group of readers, a more international group of readers, a group of readers with um, not necessarily non-traditional taste, because actually Anne Leckie's novels are pretty traditional uh, in, in in many ways. They're they're old-fashioned science fiction in the sense that people want, but old science fiction, old-fashioned science fiction with a kind of new generation spin to it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think so, and that's surely a perfectly reasonable thing. The awards have always gone through generational changes, and that. You know, sure. I, I mean, on one hand, I guess that means it's bad news for people who like getting nominated who were nominated before, but that's natural. And so, sorry you know, no harm, no foul. Um, I'm
1: fascinated by how tastes in science fiction readership change over the over the years. And I mentioned Anne Leckie as an example. Uh, I could have mentioned uh, I could have mentioned Seanan McGuire or, or, or Cat Valente. There are there are surges of interest in certain writers. That may be a one- or two-year thing. It may be an indication of a sea change. And the problem is if you have um, a nomination process which is manipulated in any way, it disguises what those actual shifts in tastes sure. are.
0: and some of them you, know. you can see because there's obviously over the last couple of decades a ri- rise in affection for epic fantasy, and fantasy is yep. now formally included in the Hugos, and so they, that begins to get a particular... Amount of attention, which is fine. And so you could sit here and say, well, hey, uh, a reasonable prediction for the Hugo might be, um, you know, to be nominated, might be The Grace of Kings by Ken Liu. A lot of buzz yeah. on the book last year. M- first novel, first novel uh, major epic fantasy, all this kind of stuff. Absolutely a reasonable expectation. And a particular kind of um, new generation epic fantasy that would be very interesting to see nominated. Another book that would be a reasonable expectation in that space would be uprooted by naomi Novik. her um uh standalone uh, no no it's not a tamara novel at all that's what's great I mean, it's, it's a really terrific book gary i recommend it very highly there's a
1: final tamara novel that's just coming out yes
0: but but this is the book from last year that will be eligible this year oh okay last year on this okay right yeah so uprooted is is, is a standalone fantasy novel um and i think it's got very high chance of making the ballot. Great book. Or Nora Jemison's uh, The Fifth Season, um, Book One of The Broken Earth. Okay, the, 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 new, the new series. There it
1: is, the fifth season. Right. And Nora Jemison is, again, somebody who made a dramatic impact with The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms and yeah, yeah. seems to have become, uh, in a relatively short period, period of time, a major writer. One of the questions that this raises. And it raises a lot of writers I admire belong into this cat, in this category. I mean, Nadia Korfor has not been writing that long. Uh, we've talked about really new writers that you know better than I do, uh, like Kelly Robson or, or Sam Miller. How long does your career have to last before you're a major science fiction writer? Huh. Uh, we talked about Ian McDonald, for example. Ian McDonald has been around for decades, and now he's hitting the big time finally.
0: But well, well, can okay. you really? Okay. Here's the first qu- question I'm going to throw back at you, I, and I know I'm derailing you, so I apologize. Define major science fiction writer. What, 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 what are your criteria? Over a period of time, people expect this person to
1: produce on a regular basis, get on awards balance on a regular basis, get good reviews on a regular basis, and yet progress creatively from one thing to another. Uh, it's possible to do this dramatically. William Gibson had a handful of short stories before Neuromancer appeared. Once Neuromancer appeared,
0: he was set for life. He was well, going to be well, a major well, scientist. Well, well, wait, 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 right? I'm going to slow you right down there. Right. Because didn't we have a conversation on this very podcast, Gary, where we pointed out that it took a few years for his c- career to get into swing, in, into, into uh, gear, Even after your romance romance, it was hailed. But for him to be accepted as a major science fiction writer took a bit longer. It was obviously a major work of fiction, a work of science fiction. But was he immediately hailed as a major science fiction writer the moment that book came out? Not the moment it came out. But remember, it won all the awards
1: the following year. Within a year, it had become a major... a major kind of thing. See, um, I, I, I think that, that effect happened with Neil Stevenson. A couple of novels are there, but not until Snow Crash does he suddenly become a major science fiction
0: writer. Yeah, but my recollection is there's at least four or five years in before you get to Snow Crash, isn't there?
1: There was a big U, and there was the that espionage novel of some sort, um, but, uh, and, but and, and even he then- was
0: not – even then, I'm going to go mad here and get myself in trouble. You know, so here we go, Koot Streeters. Neil Stephen, undeniably right. a very major science fiction writer, so that's not in question. I think it was probably by the. Uh, it was around the time Cryptonomicon came out that he had made the transition from being writer of major works of science fiction to major science fiction writer. And it's when oh, you're... interesting
1: distinction. That's yeah. an interesting distinction. Um, so you could you could look at careers like that as well. You could go back to the 1970s and say, okay, Joe Haldeman had a phenomenal debut, but it wasn't until he had written three or four other novels that he was the heir to Heinlein, the major science fiction writer. That's probably true. You, you, you want to avoid the one-hit wonder effect, I suppose. Well,
0: it's, it's, it's but not But
1: Cryptonomicon's even an odd choice because people objected, science
0: fiction readers objected to Cryptonomicon that it wasn't even science fiction. But it was, if you like. I mean, the pre-Snow Crash books are fine, but really most people look at Snow Crash in 92 as his first novel, first major novel, right? I think so. And if my recollection so. of, the, of events is correct, it was Snow Crash goes to the Diamond Age, which was very successful, but not world-changing to a lot of people right at the time, as I recall it. And then Cryptonomicon, which went mad. Well, Cryptonomicon was a, a, was a breakout book. Yeah, uh, and I, think- I,
1: I, think, I think that Stevenson's reputation as a kind of gonzo spectra- spectacular firework was certainly there in Snow Crash. The Diamond Age is what I think made science fiction readers take him seriously as somebody who could think through a science fiction scenario with okay. some amount of complication. It's actually a better novel than Snow Crash. It's not sure. maybe as much fun, but it's certainly better structured.
0: And Look, better I, mean, I, 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 and I enjoyed Snow Crash very much, but I have to say I loved and still love The Diamond Age and I love Kryptonomicon. Uh, the later books I've struggled with more or less, but those two books I think are fantastic. I mean, okay, well, let's look at a case study in this theoretical concept of a major science fiction writer as, as a thing. Right. Anne Leckie arrived on the scene some years ago writing short fiction and whatever else. Her first novel right. a, a couple of years ago now. She now is routinely up for every major award um, and will likely continue to, to be for this one trilogy. Major science fiction writer?
1: I don't think we know yet. I mean, because for one thing, it's not as though she's written three completely different novels in different universes. She's written a trilogy. So there's a... And remember, there is this school of thought that says a trilogy is one work. Sure. Which I don't necessarily subscribe to because there are many different kinds of trilogies. But apart from that, she needs to show that she can do something without ancillary in the title. I, I guess so. I mean, she's
0: been around for about ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, but her her novel writing career is barely three years old, is it that you need to get around three to five five years? Take a step back. First question, Paolo Bacigalupi of this parish, is Mm -hmm. he a major science fiction writer? I – oh.
1: Okay, I see what you're getting at. You're you're, you're trying to trick me. You're trying to paint me into a corner. No, I'm I'm not. No, I'm really not. Okay. Because, okay, to my mind, yes, he's a major science fiction writer. I think he has a spectacular body of short fiction, not a large body of short fiction. He's done interesting young adult science fiction. He's done one novel that may or may not continue to be seen as a classic, but certainly is seen as a classic now in The Wind-Up Girl. And he's written what I think is one of the most crucial um, sustainability fictions of the last 10 years in, in, in the the water knife so i think he's produced in a variety of areas of science fiction he has he has done more things than the wind-up girl world which he first basically got his reputation for and i think he's shown a lot of variety a lot of staying power and whatever he does next will be interesting um so but, if i'm out there no. trying
0: to trick you up here's the question i'm trying to ask you about not where well, i'm not trying to trick you up at what point to your recollection did paolo Bacigalupi transition from Interesting writer, exciting writer, writer with a major book, major writer.
1: I think, well, the question always comes up with this um, when you're dealing with a high, very high-profile book like The Wind-Up Girl. Now, the Wind-Up Girl, it's possible it wasn't as high-profile at its time as, let's say, Neuromancer was, but it did get you know, all the awards again. Um, uh, the fact that he was able to, I mean, and, and the windup girl was not entirely new. We'd read, we'd read a couple of stories, very good stories. Um, the yellow card man and, um, the calorie man that were set in that world. So he, he he'd built that world. It's a very well thought out world. And he moved beyond that world with the drowned cities and, uh, Shipbreaker. He moved beyond that into a different area with, uh, Well, certainly with a water knife, but even with oddball things like zombie baseball beatdown. So in the the sense of somebody who engages with the field, doesn't simply try to find a franchise and stick with it, uh, and is, to sort of quote our friend Charles Brown, who would have been making this argument on my behalf, uh, who's interested in the ideas, who is constantly fascinated by what new ideas science fiction can play with that it wasn't before. And I don't think... That an author I, – I think that if, if Bacigalupi had written uh, another wind-up girl novel, I don't know if I'd be saying this about him. I don't think that mining the same territory over and over again can make you a major science
0: fiction writer. Fair enough. So you need at least two major ideas.
1: Um, yeah, two major ideas or some sense of adventure. They don't have to be um, – Okay. earth-shattering kinds of ideas. If you want to write... I mean, Ian MacDonald is a good example, uh, who basically had uh, a good science fiction career before he decided he wanted to start exploring other cultures, which both got him a lot of praise and got him a, a fair amount of criticism. But he moved from that uh, into Moon Colony novels, which seemed to be doing very well for him. He's somebody who seems continually fascinated by the possibilities of science fiction, and wanting to do new things with it all the time.
0: Trot has us for a different approach to the thought. First of all, is it a meaningless subjective term? Yes, of course it is. I'm
1: talking about my idea of a major science fiction writer. When you were talking about make somebody a major science fiction writer, the reason I hesitated in talking about Paolo Bacigalupi is because I am not at all convinced that the body of science fiction voters or readers. Will Paolo Bacigalupi be a likely finalist for the new Dragon Awards? Uh, Is he likely to get on the ballot for this year's Hugo Awards? I even doubt that. I don't know if the science fiction world sees him as a major writer. My argument is that from my view of science fiction,
0: he is. Are awards really relevant when it comes to assessing whether someone is a major science fiction writer or not?
1: Awards are relevant when it comes to assessing whether or not the people who give awards think somebody is a
0: major science fiction writer or not. Because, I mean, first of all, we both can name any number of fine science fiction writers who rarely make awards ballots. Oh,
1: you look at uh, Mark Kelly's wonderful science fiction awards database, which everybody should look at all the time, and he keeps these records. And at the bottom, he has a list of people never nominated for a Hugo, people never received a Hugo, um, Ray Bradbury has died still on that list. Uh, so, so yeah, absolutely, there are great writers who are never on awards ballots and we can also equally go through past Hugo Awards ballots, and we've said this many times, and find books that
0: most readers today would find unreadable so I, I guess to circle around because i don't think that the, the issue of major science fiction writers ever resolvable though there is actually there's one thing i'd touch on about it first and that is when do you stop being a major science fiction writer
1: oh that's a that, that could be a very mean-spirited question
0: <laughs> and I, I i don't mean it especially unkindly but i find And this is why I asked whether whether the whole concept was entirely subjective, because there Mm -hmm. are writers who, in the mid-80s, I thought were very major writers. And I thought they were kind of major in the early 90s, and then they passed from my personal attention, and hence became not major writers to me. I agree, and I think
1: that's a a reasonable approach, except when you define major writer in that sense, you're defining... You're defining being a major writer as an activity which has to be continued from year to year. I would be defining major writer as having produced a body of work which makes you a major writer no matter what you do later in your career. I think that's once Heinlein had become Heinlein, he could get as crazy as he wanted to, and the body of Heinlein's work was not damaged by anything. Towards so,
0: the end, I won't even mention. So even it. for example, so, so even for example, Greg Bear, who at one point got a lot of buzz for his books, and is mm-hmm. undeniably a major science fiction writer, but now gets much less buzz for his books, it seems. Yeah, he remains a major science fiction writer.
1: The body of Greg Bear's work is undeniable. Yeah, uh, does he have to continue the level of visibility, the level of newness that he had in the eighties? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think that's true of, of, of David Brin, who was really one of the major young writers when he was a young writer. Uh, not as visible now, uh, still very successful. But the body of work that gave these writers their original reputation is still there. Um, I mean, y- y- the argument, if you stop being a major science fiction writer, the major flaw in that argument means that if you are going to be a major science fiction writer, you can't ever die. And then you produce the (laughs) specter of zombie writers continuing. And and I don't want to go too far in this direction, but there are such things as zombie writers who continue to do the things they did while they were alive, and therefore lose the loyalty of their audience. Yeah, that's Uh, we're not wandering off any of those.
0: That's wandering off an angle. I'm not going there. But I mean, look, I can think of a few names. And you're not with that, but where I wonder whether it's, yeah, I should edit this out, but. What I really have wondered when it comes to this issue of major science fiction writers, and I don't think about it very much, is, is my own assessment based on my own interests. In other words, if let's say you've got a terrific writer, major writer, but let's say all they write is elegiac stories of brilliant, brilliant fantasy worlds filled with unicorns. And then they win World Fantasy Awards, they're acclaimed, they're brilliant, beloved. But on a personal level, I go, well, hang on, I read four books about these unicorns, and that was enough for me. I'm going to go read, read something else now. And mm-hmm. they still go out, and everybody's still loving them, still winning awards. But for me, the, 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 the reputation is diminishing in hindsight with my level of attention.
1: Absolutely, and this is what we've said many times before when we get into our other obsession, and by obsession, things that our listeners tell us are obsessions. Besides awards, our other obsession is canons. And it's why I keep saying canon is your – everybody has their own canon um, to some extent. But, and that's not the same thing was talking about a major writer in a cultural sense. You yourself have admitted, going way back to the early days of the podcast, I'm going to call – I'm going to really call up something now that, uh, that you thought I didn't remember. We did a feature called Books You Don't Need to Read. And your second or third selection – was the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Which I stand by that. you're sticking with, right? You're... You bet. I stand by that. Don't need to but, read it. Okay, but okay, you don't need to read it, and a lot of people I know have never finished it. Uh, I know a lot of people who've read it 12 times. The point is that if you've never finished it, and if you didn't like it, would you still argue that Tolkien is not a major fantasy writer?
0: No. I think that would be absurd. I think there so, there's so much objective evidence that he is a colossally major fantasy writer Mm. that you couldn't begin to make the argument even if you didn't like the books
1: and i think that's kind of what the situation is in science fiction as well i know people uh actually i was one of them for a long time when i was a kid i didn't like heinlein it took me a long time to get into heinlein i finally realized what he was doing but if somebody doesn't like Heinlein, I don't think they would make an argument that, well, he's not a very good writer because of that. On the other hand, I'm perfectly willing to make the argument
0: that L. Ron Hubbard is not a major science fiction writer. I think that is a fair assessment. I'm, You know, um, yeah, that's true. No, Hubbard is not. Um, I don't know. Look, I'm not really quite sure where we're going with this, if we're going anywhere. I guess what we... Well, no, I know where we're going. We've got lot... We, we, we've allowed ourselves to, to sort of become distracted from the point that you've touched on when you are talking about awards. Mm. And arguably, we should cut this entire stuff, but we're. Fa- I'm far too lazy, and we'd have to edit it back. And we will lean on everybody's sufferance. Um, the question is, is the kind of fiction that people are recognising for awards now changing? That was where well, we yes, started. I think... And the answer is yes, I think
1: and it is. I think the answer is yes, and I think the answer is is always when you're looking at uh, things like awards, are we talking about honoring the work or are we honoring the writer? Um, in other words, if, uh, and, and, and uh, to be honest, I've not read the third Anne Lecky novel, so I don't know. Is it as good as the first two? I don't know. But the fact is, Anne Lecky is a very popular writer now, uh, at least among awards voters, and the point at which you begin to recognize the author rather than the work is as, as, as the point at which you begin treating an author, I think, as a major science fiction writer. That's True. kind of where we started this with.
0: Yeah, I should also just interject uh, and, and clarify that I think that um, Leckie is objectively successful. Oh, yes. you know, I mean, her, her Orbit novels have gone through – I mean, I picked up a paperback of the first Leckie novel here in Perth, and it was uh-huh. his 15th printing or something. Oh, it's very... They're, but so they're very
1: good now. Ancillary
0: Justice yeah. was very good. but So objectively successful and objectively major. And and my point for that is obviously actually very popular. So, so she has become a very popular writer in about a three-year period of time, which is pretty right. impressive. Um, yes. What does that say to the kind of fiction that awards voters are willing to recognize. Uh, some of them want inclusive fiction. Some of them want a broader range of perspective in the fiction they're getting, a broader range of characterization that shows up in, in, in awards fiction uh, in, at the moment. Uh, some of this of course will change with, as the demogra- as the actual demographic base for awards themselves changes. And by that, I mean, i f- phrase it very poorly. What I mean is with the addition of say the dragon award, with the addition of the, the Bain Award that's out there with the addition of the Year's Best Militaries Space Opera and Adventure Fiction right. Series. All the subcategories. In well, the, uh, well, that's an actual book, though. It's a 250-page Year's Best. So mm-hmm. there are all these these oh, I, other awards coming out as well, which are also kind of, if you like, counterbalancing the awards demographic, which is good.
1: I don't see anything wrong with people wanting to give awards to specifically the kind of fiction that they like. And if the kind of fiction they like is more and more balkanized, then they certainly can do what the Dragon Awards seem to be doing, that's doing Best Military Science Fiction, Best Alternate World Science Fiction. The romance writers have done this for decades.
0: Well, Um, and so have many others. I mean, the Prometheus Award is surely no more or less uh, niche uh, than anything that's in the categories of the Dragon Awards. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, nothing wrong with that at all. And somebody was bemoaning, I was listening to, maybe it was on the Galactic Suburbia, they were mentioning, uh, no, it was on the Writer and the Critic, they were mentioning the the loss of a a translation award and how that was a pity and how it would be nice to see something done to bring that back. Uh And I think actually that's increasingly relevant. I mean, uh, if you look at the, the fact we now have freshly translated Chinese science fiction every month at Clark's World and elsewhere, occasionally you're getting books like the vandermeer's enormous book of enormous 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 big science fiction Mm. uh which has fresh translations in it more and more translations getting in to to this country uh that's an award that probably deserves more support and to be reignited if it could be
1: well the problem is and as as you know because we talked about on the podcast i was involved with that when the organization existed and Cheryl Morgan had been behind it, and Dale Knickerbocker. The problem is getting somebody to judge the effectis- effectiveness of a translation. Yeah. It's not just a matter of looking, does this look good in English? It's a matter of knowing something about whether this represents the Chinese, or the Czech, or the Arabic, or whatever language it was yeah. originally written in. And to find people who can actually make those judgments proved, frankly, impossible.
0: You don't think that then the reverse, well, the the, the, the Counterbalance to that would be simply to award the best translated work. Uh,
1: that's a different award from a, that's not the same thing as a no. Best I translation. know, I
0: understand that, Gary. But what I'm saying is, if doing a best translation is not a practical thing to do, then maybe there is something to be said for doing a best translated work that recognises the or, the the author of the, of the of the original piece and the translator.
1: Isn't that something like what the Seon Awards do in Japan now?
0: Yes, exactly, but that's going from English into Japanese. It would be well worth having something that recognizes something that comes from any non-English language into English.
1: I guess what you're talking about is it's, it's difficult to come up with an actual accurate description. You're not talking about the best translated work. You're talking about the best work, which is a translation. In yeah, other words, yes. the best novel a bunch of novels we have, and here's one which is translated from Finnish, and here's one translated from Urdu and here's one translated from from Japanese. we're not going to ask whether those are good translations. We're just going to ask which of these novels was the most fun to read. yeah, absolutely no that's, I, that's I, doable that would be doable It's doable. The problem is the problem is English readers American readers are probably the worst offenders, but English language readers in general are still very hesitant to look at translated
0: works. Which is why this would be a valuable thing to have.
1: Assuming that awards for categories like this, which would not be a major category, actually generate readers for for books like that. I don't know that they do. I don't know that when you get away from the general fiction categories and things like the Hugos um, that uh, or, or the Locus Awards, when you get into things like... Related nonfiction. I'm not sure that the awards have any impact at all on the number of people who read those books. I,
0: I, I don't know, but, it, but they can have some impact on the, um, the 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 buzz around the work, the discussion around it, the inclusion well, of it in the narrative of the of the field. And surely one of the first phases of inclusion is to get that work into. Uh, the 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 the, converse, the dialogue of the field as we as we choose to define it which is narrow but nonetheless in the dialogue sure. that, we, that we're in if we're suddenly talking about works translated from Urdu or Japanese or Spanish or uh, whatever else it may be right well then at least we're talking about them and if what if I agree. if somebody comes along and says Let, let's say theoretically an existing mm. award adds a category for best work in translation and uh there are five nominees, and we start talking about... Let's say there were fantasy awards, and they've got f- five yeah. works in, in translation. Well, we'd have to actually talk about them then, wouldn't we? And then wouldn't that further enhance our thinking about... Well, hang on. That work in translation was from Nigeria, maybe. I don't know. picking Out of the air. Uh-huh. Probably a bad choice. Mm. Anyway. Now, obviously, that writer can't be working in isolation what else is there it, it it generates more interest and discussion first phase and so i think that's a valuable thing i mean you can see there's been a lot of energy and it sits on the shoulders of ken lu in translating and introducing chinese science fiction over the last five years and now ci- chinese yeah, yeah. science fiction feels much more part of the standard dialogue of the field than it did a decade ago and that's why I think that's absolutely true and i
1: Yeah, and 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 some of that a lot of a lot of credit goes to Ken Liu. I mean, to some extent, a translation can achieve a certain amount of um visibility if the translator is well known. I mean, one of the reasons that Angelica Gorodischer was uh, well received is partly because some of the stories I think were translated by Le Guin. Absolutely Um, true. Damon Knight translated some French stories that got some traction, but by and large. Uh, the some of the most interesting writers, Lena Cohn, for example, whose collected fiction has been translated, uh, is still almost unknown. Um, the Johannes who has gained. I'm, I'm th- thinking in terms of Finnish writers has gained a lot of visibility, uh, and but r- younger writers like Karen Tidbeck are writing, or Hanu Ryynimi are beginning to just write in English.
0: Well, I mean, that, that's true, but I mean, I i, I think it's it would be a, a poor thing if we were going to just expect all of the creators out there who are creating in other languages to simply create in English if they want to have a go, if they want to be part of the, the field.
1: Oh, absolutely. And i I think one of the healthiest things that could happen to science fiction, if it were to happen, would be for some science fiction version of... Norwegian and Swedish murder mysteries. Hmm. If you suddenly got Stieg... If, if there were a science fictional Stieg Larsson, then suddenly all of Northern Europe would be writing science fiction that got translated in the United States. That hasn't happened yet. Yeah. but what would happen if...
0: Okay, let's say, to sort of put it right in our, our personal courtyard, what if the Crawford Award added a second category? What if it had best, work, best first work in translation in North America...
1: Um one of the but well, first of all we the categories were something that were set at the beginning of the awards secondly we've given awards to translated works already uh, translated works end up on the short list and end up on the long list virtually every year and on the short list um a, a good number of the year mm. so my 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 sense of the ideal was that the translated works wouldn't have to be set off in a separate category that if they're major works they would be considered along okay. with anything else this is this is true of very successful translated works in the mainstream. Uh, when Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose uh, comes up for awards, uh, I don't know if it won any, it's not in a separate category of translations. It's in a category of being a great novel. Yeah. yeah. Same thing's true historically with Hermann Hesse, who actually wrote some science fiction in fantasy, or Thomas Mann. So the danger of this, of course, is that you segregate translations into a secondary category. Why shouldn't translated works always make the ballot the way Sushin Lu did with the
0: three body problem? Because I think they need some additional focus. I do. Uh, I, think most I, th- I mean, is. I think, well, okay, okay, let me ask you this. Do you think, <laughs> I don't know the answer to this, do you think Sushin Lu's book would have got the amount of attention that it did if it wasn't translated by Ken Liu? I
1: don't. And I hate to say that, but. Uh, About uh, 10 or 15 years earlier, I don't know when it was, Tor made a similar effort to um, bring Andreas Eschbach to English readers uh, with what I thought was a brilliant novel called The Carpet Makers. It really didn't seem to go anywhere. Uh, Andreas Eschbach is not a well-known name among English language readers. Uh, I don't even remember who did the translation. It must have been an excellent translation because I found it very readable. But it was not a celebrity
0: translator. And isn't the same thing true of someone like, say, Wolfgang Jeschke? I mean, I know that his—I think it was his final novel, certainly his most recent novel—was published yeah. by Tor and translation a couple of years ago, two, three years ago. Just about two years ago, yeah. Or it feels that long ago. And it's like game, yeah, yeah, and it didn't get the um, uh, the amount of buzz that the quality of the book would have would have deserved. I don't think. No, uh,
1: science fiction has never broken through. It's it's not as though it's not entirely true that a translated book can't become a success in the United States or in the English-speaking world. It's rare. I mentioned Echo. I mean, uh, the, one of the most, I'm not sure I, I could argue figures on this, but I bet if I went back I could get some good support for my claim that probably one of the best-selling translated science fiction novels in America, at least, ever was, was Mollyville by uh, Robert Merrill. Malaville was a post-apocalyptic post, people surviving after a nuclear war. They're in a wine cellar and so forth. The only reason that became a successful novel in translation was because the author had earlier written a novel called Day of the Dolphin, which was reasonably successful in translation and which was then made into a movie. So suddenly he was an international star. Um, The the same thing with the the girl with the dragon tattoo, the Stieg Larson sort of thing. That sort of thing can happen, and it does happen, Not as much as it should, but on a fairly regular basis, it never happens with science fiction. And part of the reason it never happens with science fiction is that science fiction is, as much as we'd like to think otherwise, still a kind of niche enterprise. I I guess, or
0: or at least we have a niche awareness
1: of it. Well, its you might think that Norwegian black metal crime fiction is a niche also, but it seems to be massively successful. (laughs)
0: I, I should tell you about one of the most exciting things I heard about. It's not very public, so I can't say much about it, but ah. it is relevant to this. I've been in touch with a good friend of this parish, uh, Jeff Ryman. Uh-huh. Love Jeff Ryman's work. Big fan. And Jeff is engaged in a major nonfiction project. He's putting oh. together a body of work that he calls 100 African Writers of Non-Realistic Fiction. He's hmm. got uh, support uh, through a grant or something to travel to Africa a number of times to interview and talk to 100 different creators uh, throughout places like Nigeria and Ghana, Malawi, Tanzania, uh, this sort of thing. And to put it into a major book, and obviously the major focus is of them, not Jeff, it's just Jeff's doing it. Uh, hmm. And I have no doubt that it'll be fa- a fascinating book because he's a really interesting, articulate thinker. As well as gifted writer, and I'm sure he'll bring that to the final project. And I, I think some of that stuff will start appearing in the world fairly soon. To some and... extent,
1: we, we need the Jeff, Ryman, yeah, we need somebody with the profile of a Jeff Ryman to bring this sort of thing to people's attention. Because for one thing, that helps make this sort of thing publishable. Um, and I do give a lot of credit to the Vandermeers, not only for the new commissions of translations in the Big Book of Science Fiction, but what, what they've done in the past with. Uh, with Cheeky Frog and, and, and their small presses. There's,
0: there's no doubt that a lot of what we currently pat ourselves on the back about and call inclusion in science fiction these days comes down to the hard work of a small number of people. Whether it's it the world okay. science fiction crowd that Lavi Titar is part of, whether it's the, frankly, decade-and-a-half, two-decade-long or more Effort that the Vandemers have put in, and they, because you have to give them credit, they've always consistently done this throughout their careers. Um, whether it's what Jeff now looks like he's doing, what Ken, what Ken Liu is doing, what James Morrow tried to do when he he did his Sif for Book of World SF some years ago.
1: Yeah, James and Kathy Morrow were trying very very seriously. They got new, they got some new translations for that book as well, and uh, it it got re- very respectable reviews. But unfortunately, I don't think it made a single... I I don't remember who was in it, but I don't think any of those people became household names in science fiction as a result of it. I wonder how Uh, critical... I think that was kind of an unfortunate title in a way. It was an anthology of non-English language science fiction, European science fiction. But it wasn't a Hall of Fame in the sense that the traditional Hall of Fame anthologies were voted on.
0: I wonder how critical a part in the success of this... Uh, the decision by Clark's World to publish a, a translated science fiction, a Chinese science fiction work, every month is. Uh, it's a great thing to do a discrete project, an anthology, a book, whatever mm-hmm. else. But when you start putting something in the front of the local, domestic readership regularly on a month by month by month basis, what you do is you demonstrably normalize it. Yeah?
1: I think that's one problem, and I think the other problem. Is, is is something that I'm sure Jeff Ryman is aware of with his project, uh, and it's one that was called to my attention some time ago by, I think it was by Nidia Korofor, actually. It tends to focus on translated Chinese science fiction as though it's all a, a kind of mass. It doesn't focus on authors. It, it, in other words, uh, one of the problems with the science fiction uh, SFWA European Hall of Fame was that there were a lot of writers in it. It it exposed a lot of different stories, but it was a story by story exposure to European science fiction. Uh, The idea of putting together a lot of African writers in an anthology will be a story by story approach to African science fiction, rather than looking at who are the major authors there. Who are the people we ought to be reading more than one story by? uh, And more important, who are the novelists that ought to be being translated?
0: Yes. I think that's true. I mean, you, you've you've got that thing where you're, you know, and this is what, why I, I think that the Clark's World thing, and and significant kudos to Neil Clark for for doing it, committing oh, committing to a publishing it as part of your magazine normally every month makes a lot of difference. Let me ask you this as well. I mean, I feel like Chinese science fiction is getting, if you like, normalized into. Oh yeah. Science fiction. Name two other. Chinese science fiction writers who aren't uh, lu I'm sorry you dropped out just then at that moment I said, name two other writers who are Chinese who are not yeah
1: that's that's exactly the point I'm making. I don't know if you or I could do that. I think one of the things i I, I guess what bothers me about representing non-English language science fiction in anthologies is that the expectation is I'm going to read a Chinese story a month, or I'm going to read a bunch of Finnish stories in this anthology, and therefore I will learn to look for more Chinese and Finnish stories. I don't think that's the way readers read. I think well, it, it's not. But look I mean, actually, at an author and say, "I want
0: I want to read more stories by this author." Well, certainly having stumbled across, well, not having stumbled, having the Vandermeers thrust Karen Tidbeck in front of me when they published Jagannath, Karen Tidbeck became someone Uh who I read normally then. And there have been other Finnish writers that's happened for. So now if you ask me to name three or four Finnish writers, I could do so. And actually, having said that, I I don't think that I could name a couple of Chinese writers. When I look at the names uh, that are published at Clark's World, they actually do begin to uh, resonate because you recognize them from previous publication. Okay, that's important. That's exactly what I'm saying.
1: And then you I start going, well
0: crucial. I mean, in fact I remember I, I wanted to chase and there are practical reasons why it's tricky. You know, I wanted to trace some short trace some short fiction from Sissin Lu for some of my projects. So, well, I like the kind of stuff he's writing. So how do I get him wow. into my book and uh, you know as an editor and then he starts appearing there. Uh so look it's it's a process. It's a process. But I think it's happening. I think we're seeing more people appear, you know, more translated writer, writers appear regularly. They're getting attention. We're seeing that there are structural differences in the kind of stories they want to tell uh, mm-hmm. quite often, and that's fine. That's a learning thing for us as readers as well as, you know, any, as much as anything else. So, look, it's, it's it's an interesting time, Gary.
1: It's a fascinating time, and I, I, I don't think the problem... Uh, has been. I mean, There obviously are financial problems. There are publishing problems. There are problems of how do you pay the translator and the author and so forth and so on. Uh, I don't think it's been, for lack of goodwill, on the part of uh, the Vandermeers or, or or Jeff Ryman or Ken Lua. There's a, there are a lot of people making very good efforts to get very good translations in front of us. I think the problem is still getting readers, especially genre readers, to recognize that there are not just interesting stories from this country but interesting writers who are consistently writing stories uh, that we should know about
0: yeah well certainly the obvious example it takes a lot of support i mean when you hear the story about what it takes it's taken to get xixin lu translated to get his trilogy out from tor it right. has been a phenomenal commitment from tor from xixin lu from ken lu from uh, I think there's chinese government support in there as well and, all and the other tra-
1: the other translator besides ken
0: yeah, uh, his name so, I don't remember. Yeah. shows all kinds of stuff that that's caught up, and it's not by no means is a simple, straightforward thing. But on the other hand, Sissin Lu feels like part of the discussion now, Mm-hmm. which he was not
1: three years ago. I think that's uh, that's obviously true, and and part of a very mainstream discussion because one of the things that's interesting about the Three Body Problem trilogy uh, is that unlike some of the short stories that Ken Liu had translated, in which Ken explained there are very different modalities of storytelling in Chinese stories than there are in the United States. The Suzy si Li novels were deliberately and and, and and intentionally old-fashioned Heinleinian science fiction. This is somebody who grew up with a love of Heinlein and Asimov and Clark, and it shows in the fiction. Uh, and while there are characteristically um, Chinese elements, I suppose, um, it's it's something I think American readers could look at and say, this is different, but enough of it is familiar that it reminds me of what I
0: like. Um, is the benchmark of when we can say that this is, this is all succeeding, when someone like Sissin Liu uh, starts to publish regularly? I mean, we've seen three novels in a single trilogy, and it's taken a heroic amount of translation work and everything else. Right, But if we see another novel and another novel, do we then begin to think? Can we sort of start to say, well, that's that you know, a pathway has been opened up into China to begin to get some idea of what they're doing about science fiction, and that's happening. And now we can start looking at Brazil or Argentina or Spain or Russia or Tanzania or Nigeria or wherever. I, I would love to do that. I
1: mean, well, absolutely, and, and it's it's one of the frustrations um, that I've had as a scholar. Uh, that um, there was uh, I've I've talked about it uh, before on the podcast. There's a a book by Libby Ginway called uh, Brazilian Science Fiction. It's a history of Brazilian science fiction going back to the 19th century. Almost none of it um, has been translated. Uh, There's a guy named Brad Lau who did a study, I think it was a McFarlane book, on 1950s French science fiction novels, almost none of which have been translated. Yeah, and when you read about these, you read about you read by comparative literature in comparative literature scholarship, and you realize there's uh, a, 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 not not just the weird offshoot kinds of things, the the 1930s kind of allegorical novels that you would get that sort of look like science fiction. There's a substantial body of science fiction that thought of itself as science fiction for decades in many other countries. And we not only don't know anything about it, we're probably never going to know anything about it because even if we do get the new Brazilian science fiction writers or the new Chinese science fiction writers, is anybody going to actually develop a market for the Brazilian science fiction that was written in the 60s and may not even be in print <laughs> there now? Maybe not. Maybe not.
0: You know, yeah. uh, We can't necessarily – redress all of the wrongs of the past or whatever or overcome the challenges of the past maybe rather than address the wrongs is a better way to put it but we can certainly look around the world today and engage with writers around the world as best we can Uh, i mean obviously there's even a challenge in addressing all of the english language speaking countries never mind all of those who don't but you know, the the non English speaking uh, science fiction and fantasy creators are the the biggest challenge, I guess, to, to get into the English, you know, the well the North American and the British markets.
1: Well, as long as you mentioned that, uh, I think I think you have a point there as well because um, we've had uh, we've had separate podcasts that dealt with Australian science fiction, with Canadian science fiction, um, and to some extent. To a much less severe extent, there is a sense that Anglo-American audiences tend to favor British and American over anything else, even in the same language.
0: I, I suppose so. I mean, certainly – I mean, it's hard for me to me of an objective position on this because being a, you know, a, a British-born Australian English speaker who's you know, reading in that tradition. Um... And who,
1: left, who lived in America long enough to claim
0: that – Yes, absolutely. I, I don't have a very typical per- perception of it, but certainly, yes. There is an element that you are reading in a particular space. I mean, th- everything about the history of science fiction that we see is, is, is this Gernsback continuum slanted thing that needs to be counterbalanced against to get a broader picture. And mm-hmm. that's true on an individual b- basis as well our own histories, uh, what we're exposed to, what the kind of stories we think we want to respond to. I mean, one of the com I remember a couple of years back, Small Beer published an anthology of. Mexican science fiction, I think it was in fantasy yes they did very interesting book, and there's this common response to it that was that you were getting particular kind of like there the version of fantasy you're going to get would be magic realist fantasies rather than say of rather than um epic fantasies set in Mexico, say. So, yeah. I don't know. And then, of course, it's like, who gets to do this? I mean, there's a t- television show coming out here in Australia. You, you might see it being referenced around on Facebook that ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Commission, is producing a new television show called Clever Man, which is mm-hmm. a midterm future science fiction series, it looks like, dystopic, uh, featuring Aboriginal mysticism. Hmm. Now, any approach towards Indigenous Australian beliefs that's not presented by Indigenous Australians is very sensitive and very fraught, you know. But on the other hand, it's like there's a... You really want to include that voice if you can. So I don't, I don't know what the way the way forward
1: is. I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that's a separate podcast and we could get into the cultural appropriation argument and the first thing that comes to mind is Peter Weir's The Last Wave, which was one of the last epic sort of uh, treatments of uh, aborigine mythology before before people became aware of how this was appropriating myths and so forth. That's a separate issue. Um, The point I was making was that there is a hierarchy in science fiction, historically, and the hierarchy has America and England somewhere at the top, depending on whether you think Heinlein or Wells is more important. And further down the list, there are other... Uh, other countries. When I was reviewing one of Ian McDonald's early books, one of his early novels, which was published under uh, the title The Broken Land Here and under the title Hearts, Hands, and country. Voices, I think, um, one of the things that became apparent to me, and I later confirmed this talking to Ian, was that Northern Ireland is a th- for, for all intents and purposes was the third world country he was writing about. Hmm. It was a country which was a completely English-speaking country Completely unrepresented in the science fictional universe. Um, and I thought at the time, that's very odd because you tend to think of all English language science fiction being equal, and it's not.
0: No, it's not. Not at all. American science fiction is the most equal. English mm-hmm. science fiction is the next, next most equal. And then they're a long way behind our other runner up. Probably Canadian science fiction, yep. and then on down the list.
1: Well, and then you get into the definition of who's Canadian or who's Australian or whether you know, that's or who's British. I mean, um, and we, we 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 could go nuts at that point. It was do do people in Australia consider a Bertram Chandler a Brit who just moved there or an Australian writer?
0: Probably an Australian writer. I mean, I I, t- I think of him as as a Brit who moved here, and I think ah. I've got a very good reason for thinking that. Uh, he ah. was in his forties when he moved to Australia. Uh-huh. He was well formed as a person, as a creator, and everything else. So it's not quite the same as you know you move when you're ten years old or something. So you, you can't
1: know. argue that Australia formed his fiction. No,
0: not at all. Yeah. Um, and I think he married. He was married to, to to a Brit as well, and they came out and they lived here because mm-hmm. he was. Was, no, no, he he didn't marry. A Brit. I don't remember now. I know where I got trank, got uh, turned around. It's because Ramsey Campbell, a Brit, married his daughter. Married Chandler's Martin daughter. Chandler's daughter. Yeah, Ramsey okay, Campbell but, oh, it, is a okay, from Chandler's okay. son-in-law. I did not know that. Welcome to the world.
1: Well, okay, this is this is why people hang on our every word. No, not they don't. Like this, no one hangs on our every only word. Only to you on the Coot Street podcast. This is a known thing. If I know it, it's known. I never heard of it. I know that, you know, I know that Greg Bear is Paul Anderson's, you know, son-in-law, but that's an American thing and we only know American things here in America.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so there you go. Small world. And also it's like, if you look at what, chandler with except with one major exception wrote about he wrote about seafaring captains in the out in the maritime it was all very much that kind of british maritime tradition and i've actually very much i've worked with men who worked in it that kind of environment and that's very much it probably the only major example off the top of my head that i can think of is kelly country which is you know very much an attempt to engage with australia in a particular way Uh uh echoing off ned kelly who you would have heard of
1: yeah Because, uh, again, if, um, well, Ned Kelly is the subject of a novel by, okay. I'm completely blanking on the name of the very famous Australian novelist who is now living in New York and who, in fact, had written a book about. Peter Carey, absolutely. Who, for a while, by the way, was lauded as one of the good early crossover science fiction writers. He was viewed when he had a book called The, Something Elephant and Other Stories, his first book of short stories, at the time, this was viewed as somebody a little bit like decades later, Jonathan Lethem would be viewed. Somebody who seemed to know his way around science fiction, but had made it in the mainstream.
0: Yeah. And whose most recent novel touches on science fiction-y kind of themes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's... it's... Well, so we did. Well, we
1: didn't get into the one topic I wanted to talk about. Well, let's actually. touch on
0: them. The, can... Given that this podcast, Gary, is, in, to my mind, a red-hot mess that probably needs to never go out into the world, <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you got? What, what else do you want to touch it's on? It's
1: three or four discrete discussions that don't necessarily connect. With... The point was sense. we had said something. Well, I had I, I said something. I don't know. We were saying this on Twitter or something, that I liked linked story collection mm. because people were talking about fix-ups. And you had made the comment that it seemed archaic. And I think, without putting words in your mouth, I think that what you were talking about is something that happened historically in science fiction that Van Vogt used to call fix ups, where you'd take a group of stories and sort of knit them together to make a book because you had to sell them as stories because you couldn't sell novels.
0: While there is uh, no so doubt. So you get things
1: like Clifford Simics. City, yeah, yeah sure.
0: Example. While there's no doubt that the fix up, the story suite, as Le Guin would uh, phrase it, has mm-hmm. always been part of the field, it, it does feel to me that it's that post, it, it reaches its apex in that post golden age period where you're transitioning from you know, the, the magazines of the 30s and 40s into the book world of the 50s and beyond. And when you hit that part of the fifties where they start actually publishing science fiction in book form as novels and everything else, there's such a hunger for uh, book material, novels, that short short stories are nudged into being novels, you know, to to, to meet that demand. And so I think, through, say the fifties, say the early nineteen fifties through to the end of the sixties, there's a real pursuit of it some some individual creators then let you know choose to use this i mean terry dowling here in australia there are others around the world mm. have picked it up as some as, as a form but generally it, it feels like that's something that, that had that had some its, its heyday you know sort of 30 40 years ago
1: i think i think the way you describe but when you talk about your terry dowling is that the black water is that
0: Blackwater, series, Days is a story, um, yeah. Blackwater Days is a story suite. Um, the Rhinoceros Cycle is a series of larger okay. narratives yeah, those, told those, in short uh, stories. The
1: Rhinoceros stories are what I'm thinking. Those are very impressive, and they strike me as being conceived of as something different than simply fix-ups. I mean it's pretty clear when you look at the Cordwainer Smith stories that he was not working to knit these together into a novel. He wanted to create this sense – of a world, a universe, much bigger than any individual story could. And I think that Le Guin was doing that with Orsinia, and I think it's become an art form by itself. I think that when you look at Nina Allen's collection, Stardust, which all the stories together suddenly imply a much larger world. I was looking at Ellen Arneson's and hath stories this week. And to take it a step further, there are, outside of science fiction entirely, people who are conceiving novels in terms of linked stories such as david mitchell with the cloud atlas or uh or, or, or michael cunningham with the hours in other words you have three or four related stories and it's it's presented as a novel uh, are you i don't see anything wrong
0: with that are, are you conflating two subtly related forms is there a difference between the story suite and the short story collection as a form. Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. There's a difference between a, uh, a, a, a group of stories that are linked either in the same universe or by implying links between the stories. Characters show up, a minor character in one story. Lavi at Central Station does this very well. A minor character in one story becomes a major character in another story. And what you finally have is a tapestry. It's a kind of tapestry novel, but there's not a central
0: plot. Is, the key the char- is a key characteristic, not the, is a key characteristic of a story suite as opposed to a short story collection that gathers together stories set in the same world uh, or on a similar theme? Is it some form of contiguous narrative?
1: I don't think it has to be a contiguous narrative uh, in, in that sense at all. I don't think that it has to have the same character. Um, I think it has to imply there have to be links between the stories that are narratively significant in other words a group of stories set on Mars for example you can't no matter how
0: much you try are you suggesting that a pendant book like the Martians by Stan Robinson is a story suite or is a is is a linked collection
1: it's probably a linked collection I mean this is something that's uh I wouldn't even give it that. I mean, I think it's just a bunch of stories set on Mars. Well, you could say the same thing about about the Martian Chronicles. These are stories. He had worked out a lot of details about Mars. He worked out details that he probably couldn't find a way to use in the Martian novels, like what happens when you play baseball on Mars, um, and wrote a story about each of these things. That's fine. What I'm talking about is what happens in... um, let's I, i'll use the central station stories since we know now from having Lavia on the podcast that some of these were substantially revised and cut for the book there are spaces between the stories that are part of an implied narrative in other words it's not just that they have the same characters although they do or that they have the same setting they do they share a narrative space that is that exists partly outside the stories each of the stories themselves
0: mm. Okay, I mean, I I, I, I kind of feel like a book like The Martian's isn't of a piece with this conversation. I mean, I think it's a, it probably isn't. It probably you know, isn't because it, writing it, it, a bunch of stories. Uh, I mean, I don't you, think Stan if, was trying to bring those together into a, a larger work. Whereas, say, in Icehenge, he kind of did. You know, yeah, Icehenge brings together pieces of short fiction into a larger work, um, and, and possibly in a similar way. Well, not totally similar to the way Asimov did in Foundation, but not totally dissimilarly either.
1: No, Foundation was essentially a sequence of stories that you know, were organized in eventually in chronological order. Hmm. So there's a continuous history there. I guess what I'm thinking about is much more fluid than that. At the end of Nina Allen's collection, Stardust, you're basically watching a movie that the characters were making in the earlier sure. stories. Sure. And it's kind of a clever... Yes. Uh, way of making stories fold in on each other. It's kind of turning, it's like origami fiction. It folds on itself in unexpected ways. And there isn't a formula for that. It's not that you have the same characters. It's not that they're all set in exactly the same universe. It's that each story reveals something about other stories that we would not have figured out by reading those stories by themselves.
0: So, so then, unfortunately, the closest we can get to a definition of this is fairly vague, isn't it? Because you end up getting yeah, into things like, yeah, you know, they resonate with one another. They're in dialogue with mm-hmm. one another. They share some elements, but they're not just simply. It See, It's like, okay, if I, if, if, if you take a book like The Adventures of Alex, which uh-huh. is a, it, which is a bunch of stories, right? Absolutely. Featuring the same character, but they're not necessarily seeking an overall narrative arc, right? You know, uh where uh, does it need to have that narrative arc to be as i mean where does it go beyond being what what, what's the what's the cusp where you move beyond just being a bunch of short stories
1: i think that depends that's exactly what i'm saying that depends on the collection and how they're arranged the adventures of alex starts it has there's a novel in it called picnic on paradise which is a good adventure novel uh, there are a couple of early short stories that are based on Fritz Sliber's Fofford, and the Grey Mouser. And there's a story at the very end of that collection called The Second Inquisition that does not even feature Alex at all, yeah. but that, in a sense, is a story about where all the other stories came from. And, and things... It's it's complicated. It's more, But the thing is that she did with that one story something that subsumed the other stories. The other stories still worked fine by themselves, mm. but by putting them in this collection and ending with a story... And, and you're, you're in that story thinking, where is Alex? What's going on here? When does this take place? How does this relate to anything else? By the time you figured it out, you sort of realized that this whole book is a work of art separate from the individual works of art that go to make it up.
0: Fair enough. We've been talking for over an hour, Gary. We should stop now. This is just mad rambling. What are we going to do next week? This is
1: Yeah, it is. Well, okay, next week – Next week we'll talk about something really substantive and focused. Okay, uh, we'll talk about, about we'll talk about
0: we'll talk about nothing but unicorns for an hour and fifteen minutes. See, I, I, I want to promise that we're going to stop talking about awards so much. I really want to stop talking about awards so much, but they keep coming up in this field so often.
1: <laughs> um, they do. It's a, it's a field that likes to give itself prizes, and I know. And we're a week and a half yeah. out
0: from the Hugo's, so.
1: We'll hear about that. I mean, we, we go back to the point we make every time we talk about the excessive obsession with awards in this field, which is that science fiction gave itself awards because nobody else was going to. <laughs> and it never stopped. And it never stops. <laughs> By and large, we're not going to get Pulitzers. We're not going to even get, even not even Oscars, not even Emmys. We're not going to get National Book Awards, so we're going to take our marbles and make up more awards and then the people who don't like those awards take their marbles and make up still more awards and pretty soon there are lots of marbles
0: absolutely and on, the, on that marbly note we, we will wind up for the moment and try to come it's back been, next week if we can think of anything been, sensible to say been, at all it's been, it's been it's been marvelous maybe we only had 270 episodes in us.
1: Man, maybe this is it.
0: Maybe, maybe <laughs> we're on the downhill slide. <laughs> it we'll feels it. We'll... Okay, we'll wind up. All right. Until next week, my friend. Until next week, the Green okay. Street Podcast. Take